Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage all the way to the we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash specialoffer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash specialoffer. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Hello, everyone. This is Lawrence McCarran with the New Books Network. And this is a New Books Network special series on military fiction. I love this genre, probably because I'm in the Navy and growing up, my favorite books were books like The Hunt for Red October and The Baron of Dragon by Tom Clancy. In this series, we're going to introduce you to some of the best authors writing military fiction today. On this episode, I have James Rizone, and we're going to talk about his book, Rig, book one of the Falling Empire series. Welcome to the show, James. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you doing? Doing good. Doing good. I just want to jump right into the interview. Um, if uh, if you could uh, let let our readers know a little bit about yourself. Sure. So, you know, I, I've been an author now for a little over four years. Um, prior to that, I had spent some time working as a government contractor and then in the military myself, you know, so I kind of stumbled onto writing as a fourth career. It really was more of a PTSD therapy than it was anything else. But um, ultimately, it turned into a, a pretty good career for me so far. So James, could you, uh, could you tell us a little bit more about the, your therapy? Sure. So when I was when I was talking with the VA, uh, you know, one of the things that one of the counselors turned me on to was writing therapy, talking about how sometimes you need to be able to to write out the different things that happen to you. And you know, when I would write out the different scenes, I would write out the different things that went on in Iraq and talk about that. Um, it got me thinking, you know, why don't I start writing stories? Why don't I start putting things together? Because I was an avid reader. I would read, you know, four books, a, four books a month typically. And so I liked to read. And it got to a point where it's like, well, why don't I read? Why don't I write the kind of books I like to read? And so that's what I started doing next. So, James, I see uh, you have a co-author here, uh, Miranda Watson, for your uh, book, Rig, The Fallen Empire Series. Uh, how did you all meet? Well, believe it or not, Miranda is actually my wife. Um, when we when I first started writing, my wife was my editor, and she would help me with crafting the books a bit. And at first, she didn't want to have her name on the books at all. And I said, no, you're putting just as much effort into these books as I am. I think it's only fair that we list you on the title of these books so you get some credit for it as well. So then she came up with her own uh, pen name, and uh, it's been off to the races ever since. Wow. So how do you uh, go about splitting up the the different roles? The work? Yeah. Yeah. Everyone wants to know that. So we have a bit of an assembly line process at this point. It did take us a few years to kind of get this whole thing ironed out and do a little Vulcan mind meld to make make the process work. But what we do now is I'll tend to write the book that uh, takes up most of my t- most of the time. I, I'll write it out. And then once I've gone through it, usually about two drafts of it, then I hand it off to her. And then she goes through and she has a cheat sheet from our editor at this point. And she goes through and fixes the known errors that our editor always flags. And then she goes in and adds her own little flair to the character and makes sure that Everything flows, the the story, the plot, the beats, everything is the way it needs to be. And then when it goes to our editor, 
Uh, she handles a lot of the changes between our editor and our beta readers. But while that whole process is going on, I'm already at work on books two or books three of whatever series it is we're on. So I personally never stop writing. I just move from one book to the next to the next. And as I finish them, I hand them off to her. And then she kind of gets a little uh, backed up, so to speak, as she tries to work through getting them through the editing process and, and, and ready for publish. Wow, that's amazing. I, I think you guys have cracked the code. Sounds like it. Um, it's a lot of work, but, you know, it's a seven-day operation. Um, but, you know, it's it's fun, and it does really, really well. So, And it, from, uh, from experience at Rigged, I, I got to say I, I agree with that. Uh, so uh, specifically about um, the genre, how did you find yourself in this particular field, genre? Well, like I said, I spent 10 years in the military and another eight years as a DOD contractor. So I tended to read a lot of thrillers and a lot of military war books and spy thrillers. And I just generally liked that genre. Um, I also liked sci-fi, but this was the one I was reading the most of at the time. And I just noticed that there was a big gap in what was being written. I, I didn't necessarily think a lot of the books that were being written at the time were meeting my demands as a reader, my appetite of what I wanted to read. And so I started filling that gap with what I like to read, writing stories I want to read. And I just it just kind of took off from there. Um, one of my other authors I really liked is a, name, a guy by the name of Harry Turtledove. He writes a lot of uh, alternate history books, you know, what-if scenarios. So a lot of my books may be modern days, but they're kind of like, you know, what if? What if this happened? What if that happened? how would this scenario play out? And it's like, okay, well, let's spend five or six books. Let's play out that scenario. Let's see how it would shake out. Uh, and for those uh, unfamiliar with this series, uh, could you give a, without, without spoilers, of course, uh, could you give us a little um, uh, background on what this scenario you're exploring? Sure. So this series, the Fallen Empire series, I don't want to say it's, like a, a direct second civil war type series. It has a lot of those flares to it, but really what I wanted to look at as a spy, you know, mil as an espionage military thriller was in the day of, in the modern era of, of social media and technology, how would one manipulate an election? So we all saw what happened in 2016, how we had a lot of different foreign interference and that foreign interference has been happening in every presidential election since the Russians. And you know, since the Soviet Union, so that's nothing new, but technology made it new for for us. The experience of it, we got to see it firsthand and see a lot more of it happen. And so I saw that in 2016. I said, you know, why don't I write a series of how we could how this could happen in say 2020, but much more overtly. And that's kind of what I did with this. From uh, you know, social media creating you know manufactured outrage or fake outrage to um, you know, how would I go about rigging an election? How would I go about changing um, uh, ballots? How would I influence uh, voter, voter turnout? The whole, the whole gambit of it. And mostly it's coming from outside, outside influences. It's not domestic that's actually pulling the, the puppet strings. It's actually foreign actors who want to maintain the global order of things because that's how they make their money and that's how they, they manage the economy and how they what they want to return the United States back to. Absolutely. So I, when I'm reading uh, your scenes on your election election day and your early voting uh, scenes, um, I'm, I can imagine just seeing that on CNN. And then when you take it to that next step of, uh, of having the different hashtags attached to the footage, footage of the various groups inside the United States here, uh, I, I can, I can easily see that uh, in, in was 2016 your, your uh, inspiration for that? A little bit, yeah. I mean, I thought about it, and, and there's there's several authors who have tried to write second Civil War books or similar style books, you know, like these, um, uh, you know, end of the world, you know, type books. And none of them, I don't think a lot of them do do a, a very good job because they're not they're only looking at one or two scenarios. They're only looking at one or two angles or aspects of the story. And I wanted to tell it from a broader perspective. I wanted to tell it from not an American perspective, but from a foreign perspective, because the, that's where I think the interference and influence comes from, is from foreign actors and foreign groups, you know, uh, 
we saw in 2018 where you had the Chinese influencing the midterm elections to go after certain congressional districts because those congressional districts were big proponents of backing the uh, tariffs that were being implemented against China. So there's a lot of aspects of the book that we saw actually being played out in real life um, because that's how I think it would play out in real life. It's exactly how I envisioned it happening. So that's how I wrote it in the book. And oddly enough, we're seeing parts of it actually playing out. It's, uh, it's got to be somewhat scary uh, as far as uh, looking to see where your book kind of kind of leads the world, uh, seeing those, um, those headlines uh, so similar to your book. It is, but it's so obvious too, though. I, I mean, I... I worked in intelligence, and so we used to have things called red selling. And what you would do is take a target and you would figure out, okay, how do we infiltrate this network? How do we infiltrate this target? Um, how would we go about defending it then? So if you're, you know, when I was at US European Command, our, our objective was to, you know, deal with the Russians and defense of Israel. So if we're defending Israel, what would be the main opponent, main ways of attack? And then you develop a defensive plan on how you would deal with that attack. Um, same thing with the Russians. What would be their main way of attack? And then how do you develop a plan to defend against it? So it's the same thing with this. If I wanted to manipulate and or rig the election of the United States to put it in a direction I wanted to go, how would I do that? How would I war game that? And that's essentially what we did with the book. And just kind of how you said, uh, I really get the sense that you're you're looking at this problem from about eighteen different angles, if, if you will. Um, it's it's so uh, clear that you're you're thinking through um, boots on the ground, thinking about those postal workers, and then you're looking at the social media, and you're looking at the political pressure. Uh, you really get this uh, uh, perfect storm of, of influence um, that I could really I could imagine seeing it on the headlines. Yeah, there's so many different ways that information is processed. You know, people receive information, they look at it, and they all handle it differently. You know, and we get surprised when a president acts irrational or says X, Y, or Z. But at the end of the day, we have to keep in mind, the president is still a person. Uh, they still get up every morning and put their pants on the same way you and I do. So knowing that, they're going to still have the same emotional responses that you and I do. What we're seeing now, though, in the modern day of social, social media and 24-7 news cycles is we're actually able to see a, you know, our policy leaders play out their opinions, their emotions, the things that are happening in real time. That's something that we never had access to in the past because we never saw it. But now we're seeing it. So I didn't think you could write a book that covers this kind of topic and this genre without implementing some of that. Because they're, again, real people, they're going to have real opinions. So why not interject that and put that into the store? Because it just adds to the realism. Absolutely. So uh, what would you say is your window into that decision-making process, um, at least for the reader reading the book? Well, I, I try to make everything as real as possible. So I'm not trying to paint one side or the other as irrational. Um, or try to mimic what they are in real life. I'm trying to portray each side as they as a rational character, as a rational actor in this whole thing, but doing what they believe is the right perspective, the right thing in their mind's eye. So when I was in college, um, I had a political science professor who had everyone raise their hand to identify their political ideologies. I have a risky thing, I suppose, modern day, but this was back in the mid 90s when it was still safe to do that. Um, so what he did is he broke the class up and then he said, OK, if you identify as a Republican for the rest of the semester, you have to defend Democrat positions. And if you're a Democrat, you have to spend the rest of the semester defending Democrat positions or Republican positions. So what he did is he forced you to have to defend the opposite position that you normally would. Now, what that caused you to do is it caused you to think and see things from the other person's perspective. And that's how I portrayed it. So if I have a character in the series who is a, you know, the Democrat contender or whatever, I portray it as if I really am that Democrat contender, how I view my opponent, how I act, 
And then I do the same thing if the uh, incumbent is a Republican. I portray it exactly how that person would view everything. So that way you keep the characters very much in form and very much real to their particular um, their particular persona that you've built for the for the book. Wow! So I, I especially get that from uh, the presidential candidate that you have in in Rick. Um, he's a uh, very torn on the inside. He has, you know, he knows this global conspiracies behind him, but at the same time, he thinks that he's the right uh, answer um, for America for the future. Yep. And so he's going along with it because in his gut, he feels he's the right man for the job. He feels that this is his time, his position. Now, does he necessarily like some of the dark money and the stuff that's being used to support him or prop him up? Not really. But he believes that despite that, he can still do good. He can still make it work. So that's why he's continuing to support it and go along with it. And we, we see the same exact thing happening in modern day politics. Whether we like it or agree with it or not, it does happen. And everyone believes that despite how they get there or the forces involved in them getting there, they can themselves do some good in that position. So therefore, they're willing to accept it or turn a blind eye to it. Well, I think that goes a long way to add to some of the authenticity of the book. Um, just having each one of those discrete members being uh, rational actors and, and people you can understand and watch grow. Yeah, because that's my biggest gripe about some authors. They just they can't get over their own bias, their own internal bias, that whether it's uh, a right or left lean, they just can't get over it. And it just destroys what could be a really good book because you, they're they're so ingrained in their own perspective that they can't see the other perspective. And because of that, the book is very one-sided, one-dimensional. And it just doesn't read well, and it's not a very successful book. No, you end up having the, uh, um, the, the, the goodest good guy, and then you end up having... The wicked coyote is a bad guy. <laughs> exactly, it's, it's it's not real. It's stupid. <laughs> Absolutely, especially in this genre, we we, we take so because uh, there's something else that I wanted to ask you about, and it kind of leads into this. Is I think I can I get the impression very much as I'm reading the book that you are definitely leaning on some experts uh, to pull some of these experiences and perspectives from experts in their field. A fair number of them, yes. But at the same point, though, I've also lived a very um, colorful and full life myself, though. So, you know, I've worked as a DOD contractor, both in Iraq as well as in Germany. You know, I worked on the uh, command staff for U.S. European Command, U.S. Central Command, and Special Operations Command. So I've worked with, you know, Admiral Stavridis. I've worked with um, General Petraeus and Admiral McRaven. Oh, wow. So, I mean, I, I've been around some of these high-level individuals to see in their thinking, their minds of how they operate, how they work and handle situations. But I've also been, you know, a guy on the ground doing grunt-level intelligence work in Kosovo, in Bosnia, and Serbia, and Macedonia, and Armenia, and, you know, Iraq, and these other countries. So I've seen how some of the, the lower end of things work as well. Um, and then, you know, my education, you know, I've got a master's degree from Oxford, uh, so, I mean, I've been around some of the, the higher circles of you know, academia, but also business and then inside the government side. Well, so, and it, it does reflect in the work, too. You get this mix of the, the folks that are um, pulling the strings and, and the, the folks at the other end of the string. There is a des definite disconnect, and I think you successfully mapped that out. What, what would you say is uh, uh, the biggest thing that allows you to kind of portray that disconnect between the pullers of the strings and, uh, and uh, those that are kind of at the bottom? Uh, I would say it's my exposure to, you know, Oxford, having been involved in there, working, going to school there. The, the, the people I was around, you know, and just phenomenal classmates, um, the different organizations and groups within this, this university are, are very old and storied. And there's a lot of, um, there's a lot of very interesting groups, you know, like Yale's got your skull and bones society and you know, all these different groups like that. Well, Oxford has their own and Oxford's groups are hundreds and hundreds of years older than the American ones and often more powerful. 
you know, what people don't realize is every prime minister of England has gone to Oxford. Most of the world's leaders, um, whether it's uh, princes and kings or prime ministers or presidents or ambassadors and titans of industry, have also all gone to Oxford. And so the alumni network is quite large, but the people that you associate with and that you're around when you're there in the parties and things you get invited to and stuff is just, it gives you an exposure you'll never get anywhere else. And then I have a very large, deep um, beta reader list. I have 94 folks who help me with crafting certain scenes, different uh, specific um, sections from Navy SEALs or Green Berets to Marines to Army tankers. I got a reader of mine who used to work as an executive at Goldman Sachs, and he helps me with some of the financial stuff. And, um, you know, just, it's just relying on people where you need them for certain scenes to help make sure that they're as real as they can be. That's amazing. I mean, I, I, um, I hate to you know, compare you to another author, but uh, I really get the, a Tom Clancy-ish feel um, as I'm, I'm reading through some of these, uh, uh, your work. Well, that's what I loved about Clancy. He would write at a really high macro level, but then he could also dive down into the details and the minutia of a grunt on the ground. And that's what made his book so good. When you read Red, Red Storm Rising, um, it was a great book because it took you from those different those different levels and you really got to get involved in the story and see it all. And that's what we try to do with ours. So we also have a number of other uh, war books as well. And we do the same thing where we have the we have the presidential or decision maker level. Then we have the general and the brigade commander level. And then we have the grunt who has to implement the, the, the actions and the, the orders given level. And that's really kind of neat because it gives a reader a really good perspective on a full spectrum warfare and how it's fought how it's decided on, how you go about getting everything from point A to point B. And that's where I think a lot of authors and books just miss the mark. And that's one of the areas I think we excel in and why we have such a huge following for having honestly only been writing for four years. Wow. Speaking of uh, it's kind of setting um, setting the stage a little bit, um, when you you're writing, uh, especially looking at the UN angle you're taking um, for Enrigged, uh, how do you create uh, the perfect storm there? Because, uh, you know, if you go back to some of like World War One, our history, you know, um, you can see that, you know, very few people um, could have created the chain of events that led to World War One. I. I mean, they all knew it was coming, some conflict was coming, but to put that together and make it happen um, was difficult. But you're, you're driving, you know, the UN uh, together to create this force. Like, how do you, um, you know, how, how do you take that the next step to, to making that conflict happen? Yeah, so that took a little bit of planning. So if you'll, if you'll notice in the, in book one, what we did was you had the scene sort of, sort of being set in 2017. And they start moving the, the chess pieces around in 2017 and 2018. And then uh, you have your, your particular, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but you have your German foreign minister becomes the prime minister, or not the prime minister, the, uh, the man in charge of the UN. And one of my readers is a, a colonel in the Canadian army, and he actually suggested that Canada would be the ideal launching point for the UN to initiate their operations, specifically because Canada does a tremendous amount of work in the UN. Um, they have a lot of leadership roles in the UN. So he said it would make sense to have Canada be the leading partner for this effort. So that's how I came up with the idea of everything being positioned out of Canada, where they develop, they, they take, you know, President Sachs's initiative of saying, look, you need to step up and you need to start doing this on your own and not relying on America to do this for you. So they say, okay, that sounds great. So they decide to form their, military, uh, their own mili- their own uh, couple combat brigades for a military for the UN to do these things without America's help. And Canada offers to be the host for that. Um, and so it just kind of played itself. So we set it up where that's where the, the, the chain of events are headed. And then lo and behold, this 
UN armies coming together for this massive exercise in the fall of 2020, just as all of the chaos that's been socially engineered and prepared for years starts to happen and takes place. And that way you've positioned a foreign military on the border of, of the U.S. ready to intervene unwittingly without even having realized it happened. So and that's something else that it kind of opens up something else that um, you do very well. And that's the passage of time. I think in the in a lot of the a lot of books, people like to focus on uh, like a six month period of time or even a three, uh, three month period of time. You, you've uh, aggressively broadened that. I mean, you have you know multiple years happening throughout this book and a way that you know, really brings it home. Uh, what, what made you okay with doing that? Well, so I want to tell a big story. I want to tell a big, broad, expansive story with many angles, many different perspectives and points of view. The problem is you can't cram all of that in to a very short window and it be successful. It's just not realistic. And so it has to play out over a certain period of time. So we have a lot of the scene setting that takes place roughly over, you know, two and a half years to do the buildup. Then when the actual fight takes place, the conflict happens, and that part happens pretty quickly. Um, you essentially start to see the conflict happen in the beginning parts of 2021, and then that lasts largely through till 2022, um, at which point the books, the series starts to close out in books four and five, where the action starts to go from the U.S. shores to um, international shores as the fight gets brought to the enemy. Um, so it plays out over a couple of years span, but you have to do that if you're going to make this realistic because a foreign army isn't going to just amass on the U.S. border overnight. And then it's not just going to invade and evaporate in a span of a couple of months, not when it has some semblance of popular support within the country and you have insurgencies and in fights happening inside the U.S. Um, that have also been socially engineered to happen. So it just takes a little bit of time, and I think it's more fun that way because you get to really develop the characters, develop the scenes, really get to watch it play out. Oh, absolutely. So the uh, that's, uh, something I'm also getting here is almost like a cautionary tale that you're trying to tell um, for folks that are um, looking at the maybe the next Civil War, maybe the next uh, World War III. Uh, is that is that accurate? Um, yes and no. I mean, part of me just wants to see how how a scenario like this would play out. You know, I'd like to see what would happen if X or Y happens. Um, and so for me, writing a book series is how I can explore that and see how that takes place. I also do a fair bit of vetting with my readers, too, though. Um, I've got a few, more than a few thousand people on my Facebook pages and what I do is I throw out some ideas for some series to my readers, and I ask them what they think of them. Um, is this something that they would be interested in in us writing and then reading? And depending upon some of the responses I get back, then usually they're all over it. And then that gives me the uh, confidence to move forward with it. Um, as for like a cautionary tale to it all, I think you can find that in a lot of books. For me, it's more about there's more that unites us and divides us, and it's really about finding commonality and figuring out what are the things we can agree on and focusing on those things as opposed to the things that we disagree on. Because uh, we're always going to disagree on, on some things, but there's a lot of big things that we generally agree on, and I think that that's what we need to focus our efforts towards. Because at the end of the day, if we can't find some way to bridge the gap, if we can't find some way to find common ground, or agree to disagree, we're going to go down a route like this. And if we go down a route like this, it's not going to be pleasant. It's going to be very bloody and brutal. And it's it's going to result in, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people getting killed. And I don't think that we necessarily have to go down that route if we can all agree to disagree and focus on areas where we can find some commonality. Speaking of commonality, as I'm uh, reading the book, I kind of see a, a a common string of um, of those core American ideals. You know, um, the small time, uh, the the local heroes uh, that are popping up all over uh, throughout the book. Uh, could you speak on that a little bit? 
Yeah, I wanted to put that in there because I don't think we needed to explore uh, a lot of different characters in death. I think we just needed to have some characters rise to the occasion for a few chapters uh, to kind of set the tone for that particular part of the book. And that was kind of neat, you know, from having a small town mayor to a local county sheriff or you have a, you know, a city worker who's retired from the military or you have, um, you know, a, a local sporting goods store or gun store owner deciding, hey, I'm going to try to help out by, you know, emptying my store out to my local militia group to help stop this foreign invaders. And then, you know, unfortunately, you've got the police who are just stuck in the middle sometimes and they're just trying to keep the peace and keep everyone alive and keep everyone safe. And they're kind of stuck having to choose between sides sometimes. And that can be the, the tricky predicament that they would find themselves in. Oh, absolutely. I can imagine the, the mixing the rule of law and, and then the, you know, kind of popular morality, those can be conflicting sometimes. Oh yeah. And then you throw in the national guard units because, you know, everyone forgets that national guard units are predominantly raised from those local um, communities. So their loyalties are to those communities. While they you know, all swear no to the Constitution, um, they're also going to be pretty loyal to their community area as well. So it can be quite challenging when you're trying to um, figure out how those loyalties are going to play out in a, in a particular scene. I, I definitely see a, a theme as well um, a lot of the the folks that are um, that you, you choose to be, I guess at the the grunt level, um, kind of how you described it earlier, uh, yeah. you know, kind of have an aversion to politics. And as me and my my naval career, I've, I've seen that the same thing. You know, here we are at the tip of the spear, uh, but we're you know we're not following the news and we're not following the elections. You know, a year out and all those things because kind of you know we have this aversion to being immersed immersed in politics. Yeah. In our loyalties to the Constitution, it's not to a particular politician or a state um, or a party. Our loyalties to the Constitution. And when we see that Constitution being threatened, um, that's when it tends to get a, a lot of us kind of ticked off at that. Or we feel that, well, this group is trying to, you know, co-opt our support by saying this person is usurping the Constitution when they're really not. Um, it, it's quite interesting to see how everything plays out. Yeah. And that's something that's, uh, it's, it's tough to, to remind, I think, most, uh, uh, most folks is that, you know, the military is apolitical. It is uh, one uh, unified force behind the Constitution, and that is it. Um, well, now a lot of people seem to forget that the, the, at the end of the day, the president is the commander-in-chief. You know, what the commander in chief says goes. I mean, I served under, you know, I served in the military during Clinton and Bush, and then I was a contractor under uh, most of Obama's term. And, you know, I can tell you there's lots of times where we disagree with our commander in chief. But as long as our commander in chief is doing um, unlawful orders, um, our oath is to, you know, the Constitution and our commander in chief. And so when they say this is what we're going to do, then this is what we're going to do. We don't have to like it. We don't have to agree with it. Um, but at the end of the day, there is a command structure, and we follow that command structure. I think that actually uh, makes things easier a little bit um, with that. It does. Just <laughs> clear-mindedness. Um, so you 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 do have a lot of a uh, um, a lot of flag officers and a little bit lower in that that uh, that, that place where. Um, you kind of have the visibility of policy, but you don't have the really the the high enough rent to change it. Um, that's, a, that's an interesting space for you to explore. It is because you you're in that position where you see the second and third order effects of the decision the politicians making, but you're also not in a position that you can um, advise them differently. And so you're stuck having to just play it out. And that's not always a fun position to be in, but it's sometimes the position we find ourselves in. Absolutely. And, and it also, I, I see an information gap uh, that you uh, explore as well. We have uh, some portions of the government, some portions of the, the leadership know certain things, and then others don't. 
uh, a lot. I think a phrase that came up a couple of times is when did that happen? Uh, and in a couple of scenarios. Yeah. Cause you know, the DOJ is going to be running or Homeland Security is going to be running with their sections of, uh, of the investigation and what it is they're trying to do. The military is just reacting to foreign threats and that's their job. Um, they're not as concerned about the politics, but they're being directly influenced and affected by the politics. Um, you know, and not everyone knows what the other hand is doing. You know, the right hand doesn't always know what the left hand's doing. And that's just a fact of life. That's how it is in government. I've worked in enough intelligence programs where, heck, half the time we don't know what the other hand is doing because it's a SAP, a SAP program. Um, but that's just the way some things are. And you learn to deal with it. And you hope that there is someone above you, another layer or two above you that is understanding what's going on and is uh, able to piece together those, the, the bigger picture. I think when you had uh, when you had your main character calling, uh, I say main character, uh, when he had to call on his friends uh, trying to get the information, his context out, you know, throughout uh, SOCOM, that was uh, that yep. had me extremely interested because I, I know exactly where that comes from. You're uh, you're sitting there in your silo and through your history and your personal connections, you can reach out to those other silos and, and actually find something worth uh, worthwhile. Yep, that that happens all the time. I mean, I remember many times sitting in the Intel shop at UCOM and having a question and calling one of my counterparts over at Paycom or, you know, out in Hawaii or call, calling another person down in Miami about a Southcom issue that we had a question on or something, uh, you know, with one of our FBI counterparts. You, you, you build a network of friends and people that you can leverage and use and you use that to help do your job better. I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com slash NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50 percent off and that's also so that people just uh kind of doing their job uh you get that sense uh throughout and that's a very american um uh value that you can be in this position where your your life is your job uh and you kind of see it, i think as your miss, mr smith character uh but at the same time he's just doing his job everyone has a a piece to a piece to play, a part to do, and that's what you that's what you end up working on. Now, with the um, kind of zooming out a little bit back to the the adversaries, yeah, your primary uh, for for rig your primary adversaries you have is a you know China, Russia, which are super conventional. Uh, we all can see the headlines today and see that, uh, but you also have Germany in there. Germany is an economic power, and Germany, by and large, dominates and runs the European Union. So no country in the EU sneezes or or says anything without the Germans' permission. Um, the people may not o- openly say that or admit that, but that's, at the end of the day, the honest truth of how it works. And that's because of the German economy, and Germany wields it on a, a very large amount of power within the ECB. And because of that, uh, that's just the way it is. So I didn't think you could have um, a scenario like this play out without some reference to Germany and, and, and France and how they would insert themselves into something like that. And, uh, and also uh, so another country, uh, a European country, that I was um, surprised, but at the same time, uh, uh, I understood exactly why you did it was the kind of somewhat absence of Britain. Yeah, yeah. And 
I wanted to I wanted it to be realistic. And I know some folks may say, well, it's just not realistic to have Germany or France involved. But think about it. Germany and France are, you know, some of the most powerful economies in the world and influence. When you look at the United Nations, who exerts more power in the UN than the US? It would have to be, you know, France is a permanent party there. So is Russia and so is China. But then economically, who's the one country that exerts all the power in Europe? That's Germany. So you can't have any kind of major European involvement without some mention of Germany or some sort of uh, influence with them involved in it. And uh, the, uh, I guess the, the background, the backdrop of having countries like, uh, like I said, the Britain, your Netherlands, um, kind of facing the whim because it's a change, it's a huge change of pace for those that were following politics maybe in the nineties, um, where Britain was very much a world leader, but today Germany is uh, absolutely the case. Yeah, and I didn't want to have this become like a European civil war, have the whole Europe falling apart like that. So I largely have a lot of the European countries playing neutral in this whole thing. And so we have, um, you know, the, the British essentially trying to sit this one out, stay out of the war, stay out of uh, the whole situation. Uh, we'll see later on that Britain does get involved to a certain degree. But it's mostly tertiary effects. They don't get direct, directly involved. They're involved with providing some intelligence and information. Um, and I don't want to spoil <laughs> what happens with their involvements in book four and five, but that's when we start to see more of their interactions. It becomes a little bit more of a everyone wanting to wait and see how this is going to play out before uh, everyone decides what side they want to pick, per se. And, and I... You know, we want to be on the losing side. Absolutely. And that, that's a, a sense of a real politique um, uh, mindset. Uh, you know, countries don't have friends. They have interests. Exactly. They all have interests. Then they have friends. Absolutely. And, uh, and, that, and uh, that brings me back to, uh, to President Sachs. I, I see him as a, a very um, uh, familiar role uh, if you're looking at the news today. Yeah, I mean, it's just one of those things where his interest is just in trying to help the U.S. It's just in trying to right old political wrongs and fix things, um, you know, for his own country, to make things right and economically prosperous for, for his country. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's that should be the number one job of every world leader. Is Your job is to take care of your people. Your people first and foremost. And when you've taken care of your people, then you can reach out and help others. Uh, it's one of those things where, you know, when when you're in a plane, they always say if the uh, emergency oxygen things come down, the first thing you do is you put your mask on. Then you can help put your child's mask on or someone else's. Because if you try to help someone else before you get yourself taken care of, you're going to make yourself incapacitated and potentially the other person won't survive either. So it's the same type of situation with this. You ha- you've got to do the same thing when it comes to your country. Oh man, that's, and that's, uh, I can see, see that worldview um, expressed by uh, President Sachs throughout it. Uh, even at the, uh, you know, frustration of some of the other characters in the, uh, in the book, because they're, they're looking at the world through that old uh, neoliberal, uh, America is the is the world super or the world global police force again. Yeah, and you know it, it's that whole post World War II mentality where, following you know World War II and then the Cold War, the U.S. was the the leader who kind of set the tone for everything, and the U.S. liked to be able to exert its influence through money and military power to be able to influence everything in the world. The problem is that can't go on in perpetuity. It's incredibly expensive to maintain that kind of effort. And at the end of the day, you're sacrificing resources that could be spent on your own people to wield power internationally that you may not necessarily need to wield or isn't appreciated or needed. And so 
it's one of those very interesting challenges that we find ourselves in. It's especially today, we're in a geopolitical environment of return to great power competition. Yeah, and, and you know, I saw a lot of that when I was working at NATO, you know, in, in Germany. It just, it was, it's very frustrating. NATO is a great club, but it's not a very good military organization. Um, you know, it's one of those those places where we all go to feel good um, and, and pretend that we're all in this together. But at the end of the day, we're really not in this together. It's about how what 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 we can do for what what we can do for them. It's not what they can do to help all of us. And that mentality, I think, has needed to change for a very, very long time. And it's hard to change things when things have been done for a long time one way. And fortunately, I think we're starting to see some of those changes. Right. I think I think one of the bigger things is that we're seeing uh, no longer the justification for its existence um, has, has shifted. I mean, we, we had uh, to the point where, you know, at one point in history, we we're inviting the, the Ukrainians to join uh, NATO, not understanding that why the Russians were upset <laughs> by this. And I just. Well, that the whole, that's the whole problem with Russia. That's why we're we're stuck in this adversarial relationship with, in, with Russia, which in reality, we shouldn't be. We have a lot more in common with Russia, with Russia and what we're trying to fight and handle and deal with than we do adversarial. But the challenge is, you know, when the Cold War ended, we agreed in 94, I think it was Bill Clinton agreed that when that we would not expand NATO's borders to encroach upon Russia. We would not continue to have NATO trying to constantly do that. And what happened every year, we kept accepting new members, Poland, Romania, Hungary, Bulgaria. Then we said, oh, Let's take in the Baltic states. That way we can put a bunch of spy bases all along the Russian border. And then let's try and take in Georgia. And then let's try and take in Ukraine. We're not even honoring the, own, the, the agreement that we had, we had set up with them, you know, back at the end of the Cold War. And we wonder why it's an adversarial relationship. Um, you know, again, it's one of those points where does Europe really want this adversarial relationship? Because they're not spending any money on their defense. They're expecting the United States to do it. And does the U.S. really need this adversarial expense? You know, we're spending all this money on, on an organization to fight an adversary that we say we're not enemies. Well, if we're not enemies of Russia, then why do we need to have an organization that's primary goal is to defend and or attack Russia? Why do we need to have a military that's geared to defend and or attack Russia? It's one of those great questions that I don't know that we'll ever get, get answered. No, it's, especially in the light of not having any sort of force in the real world uh, attached to NATO or attached to U, the UN. Um, and that's something that yeah. you explore uh, here, uh, obviously in a little bit different context. But um, is that something that you see as a, as, as a natural next step for the UN? No, I don't think so at all, because I think the UN is so um, scandal plagued with their, their blue helmets, their, their UN force is just, basically what happens with the UN army is nations who want to contribute it send either their worst units to it, or they send units that they just want them to get some international experience or training. And so those are the units that get selected. They're not sending their best units to go. And they're not sending units that are going to be even fully equipped and prepared and trained to handle the missions that they're they're being sent to. I think ultimately what needs to happen is you need to take the NATO um, and and just reform it. You you know don't call it NATO, just change it, but change it from a geographical centric organization to be in a global organization, an organization that can accept in say Japan. Uh, that can accept members like uh, Brazil, that can accept members that are not traditional members like Australia. There are a lot of ways that we can make an international uh, military alliance organization. But the challenge in making some organization like that is how do you handle and deal with, with Russia and China? Are you making this organization to stand against China or to stand against Russia? And if you do, you have to accept the fact that 
you're going to create a new Cold War because those nations are going to then form their own strategic alliance and their own spheres of influence to counter your new global alliance. So it brings you back to the question of what do you want this force to do? Uh, how do you want to leverage and use this thing? Um, and that's a, that's a good question to ask because at the end of the day, you know, everyone wants to be involved in everyone else's business, but should we? You know, should the United States intervene in the Syrian civil war? Um, should the United States intervene in uh, Kosovo or in Bosnia or anywhere else? That's kind of a, a big question that we have to ask ourselves is what do we need to intervene? What do we need to get involved in? And what do we not need to get involved in? I think it's a, the, your book kind of illustrates some of the potential uh, consequences of, it, of that sort of involvement. Yeah, and it's just it's it, it's again it's it's money. We're spending an inordinate amount of money on all of these different projects, and that's money that we can't spend on our own stuff. You know, people talk about the the marvels of European transportation system and their healthcare um, program. Well, there's a reason they have all of that. They haven't had to invest trillions of dollars into providing for their own defense because the United States provides it for them. Uh, when they don't have to worry about a military or investing in defense technologies because they know at the end of the day, tens of thousands of American soldiers and young men and women will go and die for their country, why should they? And that's kind of the problem we've been facing for the last 20 or 30 years. That's, that's, that's very accurate. And, I, and, I, and so, uh, like, and like, kind of like what, said, what I said earlier, um, President Sachs, you, you just kind of hear, hear that same uh, um, perspective uh, coming from him. Um, but at the same time, I think you give a good uh, counter voice to those who would say um, kind of the opposite that, you know, uh, America should be the global uh, police force um, and all those things. Yeah, it's one of those things where you have to you have to make the decision. Are we or are we not going to be the global cop? So if the decision is we're going to be the global cop, then that's fine. Let's agree on that and let's jump in with both feet and let's assume that role. And then let's make everyone accept that and have to pony up and chip in for that. Um, but if that's not the role we're going to assume, then we need to accept that and we need to step back from that role. Right, in, in this uh, quasi state of not fully being in the role, but somewhat being in a role, we've done a lot of... Uh of the kind of action you depict in your, in the, in the first book of the Paul Empire series, uh, that, that paramilitary, uh, um, doing those rapid insertions, uh, the command team watching the helmet cams and the rifle cams of the, the seals going in. Um, is that something that, uh, you kind of had from your experience that you, uh, got to see some of those things? Yeah, when I was in Iraq, so I, I was a I was an interrogator, and my job was to interrogate high value targets that we were capturing. Um, believe it or not, I was actually an Air Force interrogator. There weren't many of us, but there were a few of us. And most of us are usually assigned to um, a lot of the high value detainees. And so, when we would get a target, you know, we would use our electronic wizardry to find them, and as soon as we found them, then we would send a a JSOC team would usually go and go grab them or sometimes depending on the target, it might be a conventional unit, um, you know, or a regular soft unit, just depend on the target and what was stacked up that day. And they would go hit the objective, grab the target, bring them in, uh, plop them down in a chair and pull the hood off. I'm right in front of you. And be like Mohammed so-and-so it's uh, great to uh, finally meet you in person. I feel as if I know an awful lot about you. So let's talk. And yeah, uh, once you get information on, you know, from him, you move up the food chain and it literally is just a constant perpetual thing of going after the next target, the next target, the next target, the next target, day in, day out. And so you got to see a lot of that. You would see, you know, the different drone footage of the assaults, you know, helmet cameras of the assaults. Um, so I was able to derive a lot of uh, inspiration for some of these scenes based on uh, stuff I've gotten to participate in or, or be involved with when I was in Iraq, particularly when you see a lot of the interrogation stuff. We didn't, nothing, none of the interrogations I write about were quite as sexy in real life as they are in the books, but 
it gives you a bit of a flair of the inside mind of what an interrogator is thinking and how we go about what we do. Uh, you, you kind of you said it's uh, not not as quite sexy. Now, what what uh for someone who is interested, what's the primary differences? Well, interrogations is predominantly done through conversations. It's a lot more you and me sitting and talking just like this. It's me asking circle questioning techniques where I'm going round and round, asking you know several mundane questions before I start asking some money questions. And just starting to elicit and pull out information from you with you either knowing or not knowing at all that it's even happening. Um, in the book, some of the sexy stuff we write in there is, a, is some of the stuff that we had read about and wanted to experiment with, and, but we were never really allowed to. And that's things like pharmaceutical interrogations. Um, you know, I'm not sure if you've ever had surgery before, but typically prior to someone getting a, a, an operation, they give you a drug called Ativan, which helps you to not be so anxious, helps to calm your nerves, and kind of makes you a lot more relieved. Well, that drug has a side effect of making you very chatty. Um, so if you were to give that kind of a drug to a prisoner, uh, you would tear down their defenses of them wanting to resist the interrogation, and you would make them a very chatty prisoner. And if you have a trained interrogator who knows how to ask good questions and good techniques, they could elicit an incredible amount of information from a very uncooperative source in a very short period of time without ever having to resort to harsher interrogation techniques or, or tactics. Wow. That's a, it, now, would, uh, would your character uh, like a Mr. Smith um, be have that tool, those tools in his arsenal? Yeah. Back? Well, he probably would. Um, at this point, I would suspect they would if they did it. I would consider it a malpractice if they weren't exploring those techniques and tactics now. Uh, when I was an interrogator, this was in the, you know, the early parts of the Iraq War, well, mid parts of the Iraq War in 2006 and seven. So we were a little bit constrained in certain things. But I have to think that technology uh, it has, it has increased and gotten better and made the, the process significantly better than when I was doing it. Um, but in the book, we explore a lot of those areas uh, that I wish we could have used, that I kind of hope our, our intelligence groups are currently using. I have no factual knowledge if they are or are not, but I hope that they are. Right, it's from the standpoint of using everything in the toolbox. Well, it, every, the, you need to use everything in the toolbox. But the fact of the matter is you don't need to waterboard someone. You don't need to torture someone to get the information out of them. I was incredibly effective at my job without using any of those tools. They weren't available to me for one, so I had to get creative and find alternative ways to make it work. But that's not to say that there weren't other tools that would have been far more effective had they been allowed to be used. I'm a big believer that I think drugs, you know, pharmaceutical interrogations, hands down, would be a much better approach to things because you're not physically harming someone. You're not going to mentally harm them, you're not physically hurting them, and you're extracting the information you need in a time you need without having to resort to um, more older fashions that I think are just outdated. Speaking of those outdated fashions, uh, I imagine you said uh, you were over uh, in Iraq 2006, 2007, um, when the mm -hmm. kind of focus point on the, inter the interrogation techniques was coming out. Uh, did that affect you uh, while you were out in the field? Oh, tremendously. The McCain-Feingold um, 2000, was it 2004 Detainee Treatment Act or whatever it was, that, that thing made it almost impossible to interrogate. You know, here's a case in point. I have a high-value Al-Qaeda operative. I want to put the guy in separation. You know, I want to separate him from everyone else. That way he can't learn any resistant techniques. He can't learn anything about us or his situation. The problem is I got to have a a colonel sign off on him being put in separation for just three days. I want to have him separated for 30 days. I have to have my task force commander, which is a two-star general, sign off on that interrogation request. If I want to have him separated for up to 60 days, I have to have the theater commander, which at the time was General Petraeus, sign off on that interrogation um, request. That's ludicrous. How is it that the FBI could hold Paul Manafort in isolation 
for a year, for over a year during his trial. But I couldn't hold an Al-Qaeda operative in separation for 30 days without a two-star general signing off on it. So the problem was we made military interrogations incredibly difficult. We afforded terrorists far more legal rights and protections under the military code of justice and our, than we would a U.S. citizen when they're being interrogated by the FBI. And I thought that was kind of ridiculous. You talk about these, uh, these time periods. Uh, I imagine uh, writing those time periods into a book would be incredibly difficult. You know, isolating someone for uh, three days, 30 days, months at a time in order to get them to be more cooperative. Um, would that be something that you do in a future project? Well, I mean, I wrote my my first book I wrote was called Interview with a Terrorist. Um, and that was basically, um, you know, a take on my my time in Iraq. For me, it was PTSD therapy, um, but it turned into a pretty decent book. So I write about a lot about what went on and what we dealt with and how we handled all of that. Um, but, you know, it was, it was a very challenging period. It was a challenging time because when I first got there, we were capturing probably two to 300 new prisoners a day. By the time the surge kicked in a handful of months later, we were upwards of six to 800 new prisoners, you know, a week. So you're going from two to 300 a week to uh, six to 800 a week. Well, there were still only 56 of us interrogators having to question all these people. So you're working, you know, 12, 16 hours a day doing anywhere from, you know, two to six or even eight interrogations a day. It's a lot. And trying to keep all of those cases straight, trying to keep all the information straight, it was very, very challenging. It was very stressful because on top of all of that, you're still getting rocketed and mortared. You're still dealing with, uh, you know, problems with your management or your leader, your leadership, uh, you know, just friction with your coworkers. I mean, just normal life stuff. But it was a, it was a very stressful job. It's very neat because you're tip of the, you're, you're you're the guys finding the bad guys, and you, you you're pointing the special forces and the line units where to go. That was cool. It was an incredibly stressful job. Wow. So James, you just opened up a, a, a tremendous can of worms that I would love to uh, pick your brain about, but I know uh, I'm, I'm probably taking up enough of your time. Um, already. That's a, another time, another time. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, but before we go, um, I just want to ask you uh, two more questions. Um, one, uh, what's your next project? And then two, uh, if there's any organizations or anything uh, you wanted to uh, I guess give a plug out to, uh, feel free. Sure. So the next project we're working on is um, a, a military sci-fi book. Um, I, I like to write, or I, love, I like to read sci-fi, but I wanted to take a break from some of the stuff I've been writing. What we write is very research intensive um, and it's very uh, involved writing. Uh, and so I wanted to take a break from that and just write sci-fi. And I really enjoy that kind of stuff. And so I've got a new series that will be coming out in probably May or June called Into the Stars. Um, and that's going to be a, a near-term military sci-fi that takes place in the 2090s uh, with uh, humans making first contact of a new race um, and, and, and discovering humans on other planets outside our star system uh, and, and figuring out how in the heck that happened. So I think that's going to be a really exciting and cool series to see happen. Um, as to different organizations, um, I'm working on doing a, a Memorial Day Veterans um, uh, Anthology box with a, about 20 other authors. Uh, we're looking to raise $100,000 for uh, the Gary Sinise Foundation, Southeastern Guide Dogs, the Lone Survivor Foundation, and Wounded Warrior Project. So our goal is to raise 25000 for each of these organizations. Um, that anthology set will probably come out in uh, April, April or May-ish, and uh, I'll share that link with you about what that is when it comes out. But uh, that's kind of our, our next our next projects. Absolutely. Uh, any, um, so I'll, I'll, I'll definitely be putting the links in the, uh, in the, on the show notes um, for this windows come out all right but uh james it's been a pleasure talking to you um and i i, I wish you well for your uh, for your military sci-fi books and i look forward to reading uh the rest of the uh falling empire series 
Sounds great. I'll talk with you later. All right. Bye-bye. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.